Welcome to another installment of the PH Journals podcast today. I feel extremely privileged and uh, I've been waiting for some time for this. I'm joined by a legend, um, somebody I've looked up to my whole life. And uh, growing up as kids, I mean, we used to watch um, Tom on ESPN and all those cool shows. Tom Miranda, everybody. I know I don't need too much introduction, but Tom, thank you so much for joining me. Hey, man. Really appreciate it. So... Everyone from South Africa's side, we just want to know, from the ESPN days, where, where, where have you gone to now? What are you doing? What are you up to? How's things going? Things are going really well. It's always great to be back, you know? South Africa, awesome place. Yeah. This is my 51st trip. 51st. 51st trip back to South Africa. So, uh, I've got a love affair with South Africa and all the people that live here, you yeah. know, all the hunting concessions, all the animals, everything. Um, you know, the ESPN gig was great. I did it 1992 to 2010. And in 2010, ESPN decided to drop the outdoors from all over the world, not just in South Africa. So when it stopped in South Africa, it also stopped in America and everywhere okay. else. ESPN was a stick and ball sports. They did soccer and football and hockey and, you know, baseball. They decided to go back to that. And so the, the outdoors dropped. And so I moved to NBC Sports for two years. And then eventually ended up on the Outdoor Channel. That's where my show is, Territories Wild, airs on the Outdoor Channel. That's been airing. This is 2021. We're still going strong. Yeah. Well, getting to know you over the past couple of days, it's been an absolute pleasure. But something interesting that I've picked up and, and following you on Facebook and stuff was, was the trapping business. Tell us a little bit about that before you got into actual bow hunting. Yeah, you know, um, everybody has their start. Everybody has their way of uh, learning about it. My dad really wasn't a hunter. You know, my grandfather died when I was young, so and he was a hunter. But uh, I grew up trapping. Uh, when I was 11 years old, my next door neighbor was running a trap line. He was quite a bit older than me. Um, not quite a driver age, but I was 11 years old and I started following him around on this trap line. And eventually he got a girlfriend and got a driver's license and quit trapping. And I kind of took over the trap line. And trapping in the States back in those days especially, and still today, was all about um, the furs because the fur pelt value was was high. I mean, in the summers when you're 11 years old and you live in America, you basically mow yards, you do different types of jobs, ob jobs to try to make a little bit of money. You know, uh, you don't rely on allowance or money from your parents. You go out and get a job and try to make money on your own. And I could work all summer mowing grass every week, and I could make way more money trapping in okay. the fall. And so I would trap muskrats and raccoons and beavers and, and foxes and skin the pelts. And it was basically an entrepreneurship. And I basically had my own business as a trapper when I was 11 years old. That's incredible. And I mean, then you got into the whole bow side of things. And now, once that started progressing, what brought you over to Africa? Well, I mean, your 51st time. I mean, that's incredible. <laughs> I mean, where did the love for Africa start? Well, I needed shows, you know. Um, when I first got on ESPN, I did an adventure show. It was called The Outdoor Adventure Magazine. It was hunting, fishing, and adventure. So ESPN knew me as the crazy bow hunter that do anything once because I would do skydiving, bungee jumping, rock climbing, uh, ride a bull, walk on fire, uh, all types of different airplanes I would fly. So it was really an adrenaline-type show, but we always did some sort of a hunt, and we always did some sort of fishing on the show. And so uh, eventually as that show, and we had really high ratings, it was very popular uh, starting in 1992 to 1997. 
1998, I started doing a show called Advantage Adventures, and that was uh, where I just decided to only do bow hunting. I grew up uh, with a Fred Bear recurve bow, and I would shoot in the backyard, but never really hunted with it when I was young. Um, eventually, I wanted to do a TV show about trapping, and that's originally that's what I wanted to do, a TV show about trapping, yeah, because I was a professional trapper. I was a government trapper in South Dakota. I had my own airplane. The claim to fame for me getting into the video business was I would use my airplane to fly my trap line in South Dakota. In South Dakota, if you think about South Africa and compared to South Dakota, it's the Great Plains. So it's just large, flat expanses and little hilly areas with no trees, just wide open prairie. So when you can fly, I could land my plane on the road, I could land my plane in the fields, and so I could check my traps with the airplane. And it was a novelty and I made a video about it. And that video eventually launched me into the opportunity to eventually do TV, and that's how I started doing TV shows, and it just went from there, you know. But you need TV shows. It's like a, an animal that you have to feed. Yeah. And so in North America, we have really regulated hunting. You know, like the hunting season starts in the fall, and it's white-tailed deer and a few other species, bear, you know, black bears and elk and yeah. pronghorn. But then when the season's over, there's really no hunting again. You know, we get some turkeys in the spring, but I needed to make 13 original TV shows for ESPN every year. And I was a bow hunter, so I only bow hunted, so I wasn't rifle hunting or anything. So that's why I needed to find a place that I could go in the spring, other than turkey hunt, to be able to bow hunt. And Africa was the place that I came. And it just opened up a whole new world for me. <laughs> yes, and I mean, the. Yeah, because at the at the moment you've got your own lodge here. Yeah, I mean you've you've set up your own camp. Uh, you you have guys coming over and on a regular basis. And so, so coming over, it's it's a regular thing for you now, and it's part of your shows. Yeah, and it's uh, it's part of my makeup to promote the country. It's part of my makeup to promote the hunting over here because I do want people to come to my boat camp at the Shalanti Game Reserve in the northern you know province. You know, the northern Pueblo, but. Um, I also travel around the country and hunt in other areas, like here I'm in Hunters Hill with you right now, and I mean, we're after black wildebeest and maybe go after a valley if we can shoot out on this, and you see how hard it is to film the hunts, I mean, it ain't easy, you know, I mean, it's like, and it has to be with a bow, and they gotta make a good shot, so we're constantly working, and you know, a lot of people look at me as a professional hunter, I mean, I'm really not a professional hunter, I hunt a lot, I've shot a lot of stuff, but I'm a, I'm a TV producer, and so for me, it's not about how large the horns are, how big the antlers are, how large the skull is, or how long the tusks are. It's about the footage, it's about the video, it's about the excitement of the hunt. It's like, I want to take people along with me on that adventure. You know, adventure bow hunting to me is going somewhere I've never been and hunting an animal I've never seen or yeah. never got a chance to hunt. That's exciting. But I mean, Tom, just, just being a part of this, for, I mean, we've only really had a one one full day it's been absolutely incredible but to to experience bar hunting from a different angle behind the camera and, and having see how things are actually operated it's it's intense and it's in, i mean it's it's mind-blowing the amount of things that you've achieved and so so from our side you know i, I would love to know as far as africa is concerned i mean and and taking all aspects into consideration you know um, the camera work and, and the actual hunt and all that. What has been the toughest hunt you've ever had to do in Africa? Probably for me, leopard. Okay. Because I went on five different trips in three different countries to finally get one on camera with a bow. Um, but every hunt 
you know, I have nine of the 10 for the tiny 10. Those are all very difficult hunts, not only to get because they're small targets and they live in the bush and stuff. Yeah. Some of them you only come out at night, but getting it on video and I have to get the shot on video because yeah. I don't do radio, I do television. Yeah. So people don't want me to tell them how great the hunt was, they want to see it for themselves. Yeah. And so that's what I have to try to capture. And that's what makes, that's, that's the challenge that makes, you know, if you look at a rifle hunter that can shoot a 300 yard shot and he's an accurate shooter and he can get most all of his animals at, at a distance, that's one level of accomplishment. That's one level of difficulty. And when you take a bow and you've got to get 30 yards or maybe if you're a really good shot, 60 yards, some animals can string jump. So even if you are a good shot, you need them closer. Um, that raises the bar, that raises the difficulty, that raises the challenge. And then when you start filming the hunt and have to get that arrow impact of the animal on video so that you can tell your story, that raises the bar again, the difficulty level goes up. And in my opinion, from rifle hunting to bow hunting, it's 10 times harder. And from bow hunting to hunting with the video camera is 10 times harder. So really it's 20 times harder than rifle hunting, which a lot of people would say, oh, that's crazy. But get out here and try it and do it and try to make good shows. I mean, it's not easy. Well, I mean, geez, it's just, just, just the one day that we've been involved together. I mean, it's been absolutely incredible. But to be a part of it is, is very, it's, it's, it's special and it's overwhelming in some, some sense. So, I mean, I can only imagine as being the hunter what it must be going through. But if I had to ask you the same sort of question on a, on a worldwide basis, I mean, we've, we've spoken about just a couple of your hunts and obviously one that sticks to my mind is the polar bear, but what, on, from, from all the species you've hunted throughout the world, what, from living conditions to hunting, what has been the toughest there? Well, I think the hardest hunt I ever did was my bighorn sheep hunt in the Canmore Bow Zone in Alberta. You know, in North America, I mean, I'm I'm, uh, I'm American guy, so I mean, North America is special to me. We have 29 species in the Super Slam. I mean, so we have 29 different animals. We're in here in Africa, you got 100 and some species. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, the, the variety, yeah. you know, of animals that are here is just mind blowing compared to anywhere else in the yeah. world. But in North America, you know, we have our sheep and our moose and our caribou and our bears, and then we have, you know, muskox and pronghorn, and you know, there's so many kind of cool groups of species. But that bighorn sheep hunt was in the Canmore Bozone. That's 10,000 feet the month of November. And in Canada, in the month of November at 10,000 feet, it's 25, 30, 35 below zero. There's two, three feet of snow on the ground. And a lot of times in Canada, they get a lot of rain and sleet and ice that builds up on the mountain before the snows hit. And so what you've got is two feet of snow and three inches of ice under it. So when you're trying to walk and climb and move around, if you don't have crampons on your boots, which are big spikes that help hold you in the ground, you just fall and fall. And even with crampons on, I was falling. By the time, by the time I got my opportunity to take my bighorn sheep with a bow, I had no sight pins in my housing. They were all broken off and I had toothpicks put in there because I fell, I fell a hundred times a day I fell. The guide fell a hundred times a day. The cameraman got frostbite on his feet. The cameraman broke one of the cameras and we had a spare camera. Very difficult hunt. Tremendous. I missed seven shots. The wind, we had 100 mile an hour winds sometimes. The typical wind was 25 to 30 miles an hour on the mountain. So every arrow I'd shoot looked like a curveball, you know, just, would yeah, just yeah. arc away. It was a very difficult hunt. And how, how were you hunting them? With cliffs or, or were you actually stalking them on the ice? Well, um, 
what you ended up doing is we would go to the tippy top of what they called Pigeon Mountain. And I mean, Banff National Park in Canada is a big national park. And then the Canmore Bow Zone is an area that's just outside the park. And what happens is in November, it's the rut for these. And it's the only place uh, in North America you can hunt these sheep in the rut. And so if you can imagine, these, all, these, um, all these ewes go out and they live around some of these mountainsides, but they live lower than the rams. And so the rams, when they come out of the taller mountains in the park into the Canmore area, they're looking for these ewes. And so, you know, it's kind of like the typical rut for impala or anything else, you know. And so it's a great time to see rams, big rams coming out of the mountains. But we would get on top of Pigeon Mountain and we would glass and look and look and we would try to find it. We would see ewes and we would look to see if there was any rams with them or we would try to see rams coming out of the park and coming down looking for the ewes that lived around the Pigeon Mountain. Now one side of Pigeon Mountain was a 3,000 foot cliff, a sheer cliff on one side. And there were sheep on that side too, but it was a dangerous side of the mountain. Um, and typically if we saw sheep, we wanted to be above them because Mountain animals like ibex and sheep and mountain goats, they like to escape danger by going up. Okay. So if you're above them, you've got a real opportunity because they don't want to go down away from you. They want to somehow come up. Yeah. And if you can get above them, because they're typically looking down for danger, thinking everything above them is okay because that's where they're going to escape up. And so if you get above them, it gives you a better opportunity. Then you can work down to them, or maybe you can get into a position if they're coming up where you can intercept them as they come in. So, but it was a tough hunt, the toughest hunt I've done. And I've done a lot of really tough hunts. My bighorn uh, sheep in, in uh, Mexico, which is a desert sheep, I hunted 36 days to shoot that. So it was a longer hunt, but it's warmer weather down there. It's a little bit easier mountains, but uh, it wasn't near as hard as the, even though it was a longer hunt and it was tough. Um, it wasn't near as the camera it was yeah. rough. But and so so that that North America you were talking about the super slab. So does that sheep fall under the part of it? Absolutely. Just tell us a little bit, especially from a South African point of view. I mean, we are aware of all the slams, but the super slam just give us a little bit more of a background on that. Yeah, the super slam in North American animals was coined originally by a guy named Chuck Adams, who was the first bow hunter to do it back in 1990. He shot at that time 27 species. So um, there's basically 10 groups of animals uh, that, that make up the 29 that, are, that we call the Super Slam today. Um, and so you have the caribou, there's five different caribou species, you know, and there's five deer species. So there's 10 right there. And then there's four bear species, including the grizzly, the brown bear, polar bear, and black bear. And there's, um, let me see, what's the other four? Well, there's three elk and three moose, well there's four sheep. The sheep, the four sheep are the bighorn sheep, um, the desert bighorn sheep, the doll sheep, and the stone sheep. And we have two other species. We have the California bighorn, and then we have the fannin. So those are, so there's actually sh six sheep species in North America that you can hunt, uh, but you only need four for a grand slam. And then of course we have the pronghorn antelope, we have the muskox, we have the bison. Um, and we have the mountain lion. Okay. So all those groups of animals together equals 29. And it basically you have to go from the tippy top of the Arctic where the polar bears live to way down in Mexico where the desert sheep live. And you got to go to a Thule elk lives in California. Um, and you have to hunt all over North America to get to 29 to where okay. these, all these animals live. And it's uh, quite an accomplishment. I was the 17th bow hunter to complete it where Chuck Adams was the first. Uh, there's been 15 bow hunters between him and then me being the 17th, you know, the guy. So, anyways, 
um, but I was the first to get them all on video. Yeah. It took me 13 years and 54 hunts to capture all 29 arrow impacts of the North American Super Slam. So it was a, it was a saga. Tough one, yeah. And I'm still the only guy that's ever got all the kills on video. And I actually have a DVD set called Adventure Bowhunter Super Slam that has, it's 320 minutes long and it has all the hunts. Tom, and, and like we've mentioned, I mean, you, you've got some pretty cool stories to tell, but one I, I would love for you to share with, with the rest of the viewers is, your elephant story with them bedding down. Uh, oh, I, I know. I mean, you were telling us at camp yesterday, and I, I would love. I mean, that was an incredible story. So, well, I was on my second lion hunt in Mozambique, and I also could hunt elephant. And uh, we went out uh, one day. We were baiting for lions, and we were in the Nyasa Reserve in the northern part of uh, Mozambique, and we cut a. Uh, some elephant tracks in the road and the, the trackers got off and looked at them and there was more than one and they were really big tracks and they said you know what do you want to do well i had my i, I had brought a bow for the lion hunt which is you know 70 pound matthews with just the lighter arrows and and my normal rage extreme broadheads but i also had heavy arrows and my heavier bow in a bow case in the back just in case we were to cut in on a on an elephant. Long story short, I switched gear, I got on my heavy arrows and everything, and we decided that we were gonna go after these elephants because maybe we'd have an opportunity. And my uh, PH is named Zach Grobler. I've been hunting with him for 19 years. He's the guy that runs my Shalanti camp in um, Limpopo. He's running camera for me, and so we're following the trackers as they're following these tracks. We eventually come, after quite a bit of walking, we come onto these elephants, and there's like big elephants in this bunch. And I'm not talking about just size, I'm talking about tusks. I mean. Uh, Zach estimated one at 90 pounds of, of ivory. So, I mean, and there were, there were a half a dozen big bulls in this thing. So, but we, when we come on to them, we really didn't have a place where we could approach them. And there's so many of them, you know, I mean, you know, what they weigh six, you know, 6,000, what are 10,000 pounds? What's that? Five tons, you know, I mean, that's a lot. So it's like a parking lot of pickup trucks out there, you know? So we had to watch them and they started moving away from us feeding. They didn't know we were there. And so we kind of walked next to them and walked next to them and walked next to them for the longest time. And then they went into some thick brush and we just kind of stopped. Zach said, let's have a little lunch. So we did, we kind of stopped and got water hot, really hot, 90 degrees, um, just sunny. It was just getting toward the middle of the day. And then we started to go in really, really slow. And then we didn't get in that woods or in that thicker area, a couple hundred yards and there they were and they were sleeping. If you can imagine six bull elephants together, all sleeping in one spot. And the biggest one with the longest tusks was laying on his side sleeping, which I just had never seen before. I didn't even think, I thought they always slept standing up. But this thing is laying on its side, sleeping like it's you in your bed, you know? Well, I see this elephant, and I mean, we when we walk up on it, because it was so thick, when we finally step into the area where they were, all of a sudden we see there's one over there under a tree with his ears moving. There's one over there laying down. You know, the, some of the other ones, we didn't know where they were. Then this giant was laying on his side here, sleeping. And we're, you know, 50 yards from it. So I start to move forward a little bit closer. And Grobler, like, grabs me by, Zach grabs me by the arm. He's like, no, no, man, we cannot. I said, would you shoot him right there? He's laying there sleeping. <laughs> You know, and uh, he said, "No, man, we can't do it." So we fussed around and we climbed up on this termite. They, they were all still sleeping. We climbed up on this termite mound, really, really quiet. And uh, there was another elephant on the backside of this termite mound. And I mean, this thing is like five, six yards away, standing there sleeping. And I could actually have shot that one, but it was probably the shortest. 
tusked one in the bunch. And I had already taken an, an elephant in my yeah. career, so it's not an animal that I'd probably take two or three of, you know, it's like one to me was enough. I mean, it was a yeah. great hunt. But anyways, so we ended up not shooting anything and uh, walking away from that. And to this day, Zach, uh, he'll bring that, that story up and he'll say, man, I should have let you, you know, you probably would have got that one. Yeah. I mean, it would have been, it would have probably been the bow record, you know, it was such a big one. It was yeah. just crazy. Yeah. I got footage of it, you know, but it's, uh, it's nuts. Awesome story to tell around the <laughs> um, But Tom, sorry, uh, so we've, last night I put out the, the option for, for a lot of the guys that have been following me on Instagram and stuff to personally ask you a couple of questions. So they've sent through a couple. Um, the one I'm going to kick it off with was, uh, we, we spoke about it in the pickup a little bit earlier. Um, Martin would like to know, why don't you use a peep sight on your bow? Martin wants to know why I don't use a peep sight on my bow. You know, when I started bow hunting and or at least shooting a bow, I shot instinctively. So. I mean, I didn't close one eye. I would shoot, you know, recurve, Fredbear recurve with both eyes open. I also, when I was younger, I worked at a trap and skeet place and I took lessons to shoot uh, clay targets. And the guy that taught me, he said to shoot with both eyes open. He said, you'll see the birds, the moving birds better. And so as I progressed as a bow hunter and got a compound bow, I just learned to shoot with both eyes open. And um, it comes down to form, it comes down to how you anchor your bow and what your points are. I mean, most of the good sights today have a level on them and if you get the, if you get your, if you sight it incorrectly, if you get your bow sight or get your bow and everything level so that bubbles in the middle and you've got, I use a kisser button on my string so I get the kisser button in the corner and then I'll put the string right on my nose, right on the center of my nose so I go to full draw and as long as that bubble's straight, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be able to shoot with both eyes open and I don't need a peep. Now, you know, there's nothing wrong with having a peep if you learn to shoot a peep, but a peep can be difficult sometimes if it twists on you when you draw. Sometimes a peep, um, especially in lower light, it's harder to squint through where I don't have to worry about that because I'm shooting with both eyes open. Another thing too, as you get older, um, your eyes tend to go a little bit. And if you can use both eyes to find the game, both eyes, it really helps. Because if you're closing one eye and that eye's blurry or you try to use a contact or put glasses on, depending on how you hold your head or how you learn how to, for your form, I mean, that's really important. And the other thing too, if you're not gonna use a peep, is you really have to watch your bow hand. When your bow is in this hand, not only does it have to be loose, you cannot torque that bow. You have to, so you have to have good form. And so if you have good solid form and you keep the bow level and you keep your marks right, you'll make good groups. And I'm not a, I can't shoot the whole out of a lifesaver like some of these guys that are really 3D target shooters and they started out young. Um, Levi Morgan, some of the people, Randy Almer, are big uh, professional shooters in my country that are just phenomenal shots. Uh, seriously, they can group like this at 100 yards, you know. I'm not that shooter, I'm a hunter. So I'm better at stalking and hiding and, and making that one shot. And I think if one thing too that's really a good tip is that I'll go out to the range and I'll just pick a spot. I won't even know the yardage. I'll put a bow in or an arrow in my bow and I'll just shoot one arrow. And I'll just say that's 45 yards. Dunk! And I'll see where the arrow hits. Because that's my one shot. That's the one shot I'm going to get on the hunt. And I have to make that shot count. Now I may practice after that, but I always do that. One shot at some oddball yardage. So I'm always trying to guess the yardage without using a rangefinder, And I'm always trying to make the best shot I can make. And so, you know, 
because you're only going to get one good chance, I mean, on any hunt. And you might get a second chance, but you got to look at it like you're only going to get one chance, so you have to make that chance count. And always think about where the arrow is going to pass through the animal. It's not where the arrow hits the animal, it's where the arrow leaves the animal. It's the exit hole is the most important thing. Because if he's quartered away from you and you shoot him in the shoulder, you're probably going to come out in the front like this, you know, and you want to hit him a little farther back so it comes out behind his other shoulder. So you've got to think about that exit hole. So that's really key. And most good bow hunters know that. But you can forget about that. You can forget about that body angle when you're in the heat of the moment, when the animal's coming in. I mean, practicing, it's easy because you've got a lot of time to think. But when you're hunting and you go two days, three days, four days and not have a shot, maybe not even get to practice like on a mountain hunt, then all of a sudden, you've got it. Yeah. You've got to make that shot. You've got to make it happen. Well, in no particular order, I'm just going to jump in because it sort of relates to this. Other than your bow, what is the most important thing that you carry around in your gear? As far as equipment goes, the, the broadheads that you use are the most important thing. Okay. You know, that's the mo absolutely the most important thing because what you, the what main thing you have to remember about broadhead selection is that you want to use a broadhead that does the most damage on the worst shot. The worst possible screw-up shot you could ever make, that broadhead has to do major damage. And that's why I shoot, I shoot the Rage Extreme. You know, it's a, it's a cut-on-impact broadhead that has blades that open up very wide, two-plus two inch wide. And it leaves, if you get a pass-through, which I shoot 72-pound draw, if you get a pass-through, you've got a huge wound channel. And even if you don't get a pass-through, just that wound channel to wherever that blade finally stops is just amazing. Yeah and you get a lot of blood loss. And that's the key to an animal going down quick is blood loss. The quicker they lose the blood, the quicker they stop. Yaku from Bumbula Safaris is asking, um, he says, you know, he's got your, your base camp set up in Limpopo. Was there a reason for selecting it or was it just basically your first love when coming to South Africa? Well, my first trip ever to South Africa was in the Limpopo, you know, that's where I went and it was, when you get up in the Limpopo province, well, I mean, you got Kruger Park on this side, you've got, you know, Zimbabwe up here, you got Botswana right here, you got the Limpopo River, which is famous right there. So, I mean, um, you've got, especially for bow hunting and hunting water holes, it's really hot, it's really dry. You get, it gives more opportunity, you know. So that's where I started. I mean, I love the whole country, but I mean, that's where I started. And because of my ESPN show, um, a lot of people got to know who I was, including Edwin Clausen, which is a big game breeder guy, but he had bought a big track of land in the northern province so his wife could start a business of safari tours and, you know, photo safaris and stuff. And that's what the Shalanti Game Reserve became. But they still had the, you know, they would capture animals and sell them the surplus because it's a huge, huge, huge place. And then they started doing a little bit of hunting. Edwin's son hunted, so he would take a few clients and eventually... Zach met Edwin and talked to him about me coming there to hunt because there's a lot of really nice game there. And uh, one thing led to another and we turned that into the Tom Miranda Bowen Camp and that's what we've had. We've had that for 19 years, you know, so it's really a great place. Yeah. Well, I mean, I could have gone all day with these questions, um, but just selected, I'll take you guys in the description below. Um, final one for Tom from, from the viewers, from Seth. Um, I've been following you for some time. I know you've shot all over Africa. Is there anything that you haven't shot and what are, what are your plans for the African species going forward? Yeah, um, 
well, we're here. I haven't shot a black wildebeest, so we're going to try to do that. Um, I'd like to collect them all eventually, you know. I mean, that's part of what you do when you're yeah. out trying to get the slams and inner circles of SCI and finish the awards there. Um, I haven't got a Vowel Rebuck yet. I mean, that's a hard one to get. I've tried to hunt them once. We didn't have any luck. But um, eventually I'll get one. I mean, you know, you just keep doing it until you get it, you know, and then you, to, then you go on to the next one. And that's adventure bow hunting, going somewhere you've never been, hunting an animal you've never seen. I don't have a crocodile yet. I'd love to shoot a crocodile with a bow. Now in South Africa, you need a special, special permit to do it, or you have to do it in another country. Uh, I mean, I've hunted in, you know, Namibia and Mozambique and Zimbabwe and, and Zambia, but um, I'd like to do a croc in, in Africa if I could get a permit. So the, there, and the tiny ten, I still need the sharp scrice buck. So I have nine of the ten of the tiny ten, and so the sharp scrice buck's high on my list as well. Tom, um, what's your adventures going forward? I mean, what what is left in store for Tom Miranda? I mean, you, you've done pretty much everything possible. I know you said you've got some exciting trips coming up. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, well, um, you know, you get kind of goal-driven, and, you know, when I got my Grand Slam of Sheep and my Super Slam, SCI came to me and said, you know, can we come and measure your trophy room? We know you've been hunting on TV all over, and they came, they spent a couple days and measured my mounts, and came back to me, and they said, well, you need 36 species for the World Hunting Award ring at SCI, and so they gave me the list, and they said, if you'll promote SCI, we'll help you to do these, and so I did that, and that... I finished my Super Slam in 2011, and I got my World Hunting Award ring in 2016. Um, there's only one other award higher in SCI, and that's the Hunting and Conservation, or maybe it's called Hunting and Conservation and Hunting Award. And I need three more species to finish that. Okay. And that was another 30-some species on top of the 36 I needed for the other one. So if you can think of the Super Slam as 29 animals, I mean, I needed 36 to more of my other animals, and then I need another 30-some, so it's a lot of different species of animals to get to that point. So that's one goal. I also, um, I'm a spokesperson for the Super Slam and for the Grand Slam Club Ovis, and some of their higher awards is the, called the Capra and Ovis World Slams. Capra uh, slams are the goats, so they're the ibex and the chamois that live in the mountains of Europe and Asia, New Zealand. Um, the sheep, uh, which is called the ovis, I mean, those are the sheep of the world. Those are like the Marco Polo and the Argales and, you know, the different types. And so I'm working towards that. I have 10, you have to get 12 sheep and 12 goats of the world to get those slams. And so I have 10, 10 of the 12 goats. I have 10 of the 12 capra, so I need two more capra. So I'm going this year, I'm going to the Gobi Desert in Mongolia for the Gobi Ibex, and I'm gonna go to Pakistan, and I'm gonna hunt the Sind Ibex there, and those two would make my 12 for um, the goats. So I've finished the capra world slam if I'm successful in those hunts, which are very difficult hunts. Yeah. And then the Ova slam, uh, I have six of the 12 sheep, now, and I'm, when I'm in Pakistan, I have the opportunity to take um, what's called a Blanford Uriel, which is a type of a sheep, and then they also have what's called a Punjab Uriel. So it's possible on that trip, if I'm really super lucky, that I could get two more sheep, which would give me eight sheep, which means I only would need four more world yeah. sheep to get that. And if I would be able to get, if I was able to finish, if I'm able to finish the SCI award, the hunting and conservation, or conservation and hunting, whatever they call it, and then the Capra and Ovis World Slams, I would get the final award, which is as high as you can go, is called the um, Pantheon Award. Mm. 
and you have to have all those slams and inner circles and everything, all that together in order to get that. Only one bow hunter has it. His name's Archie Nesbitt from, he's, he lives in Calgary, Canada. Okay. So you, if all goes according to plan, you'll be the second. If, unless somebody gets it before that, <laughs> who knows, it might take a few years to get all those sheep. But Tom, I mean, playing such a huge role in the industry and especially, I'm talking more from a South African market and I'm sure it's, it's like that from the North American side as well, if not the world. You've played such a huge role in bringing the sport of bow hunting to life and, and developing youngsters. And If you look back now and you see the generation of bow hunters coming through, like we spoke about it the other day, I mean, it's, it's one of the fastest growing hunting um, sports or whatever you want to call it growing um, if you had to give a message to a youngster coming into the sport and where you would like to see it as far as a conservation purpose and as far as sport goes where would you like to see bow hunting grow to which levels well i think the first thing anybody has to realize that wants to get into hunting is that it's not killing yeah it is conservation and it's about it's about the outdoor experience some of the best hunts i've ever been on ever got anything but you're out there with the animals. And if you're gonna be out there with the animals, you wanna know everything about them. You wanna know what their tracks look like, their droppings look like, what trails they use, what their rubs and scrapes look like. You know, you wanna know what they sound like when they're grunting and moving around. And so you wanna be one with the animals. And if, you, if you're gonna do that, you better be a bow hunter because you gotta get close to the animals to be successful. And it's, it's learning everything there is to know about the animal to make you successful and learning how to, to handle your emotions under pressure to draw your bow and make the accurate shot. And you have to think about it as wise use of natural resources. When you shoot an animal, you kill the animal. You're shooting him to kill the animal, but you're shooting him as part of an overall scheme of wise use because you're, got, you're gonna eat the meat, you're gonna utilize the skin, you're gonna utilize the horns. And so you're, it's, 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 it's a consumption thing because the animal's going to die anyway most of these animals only live eight years yeah. nine years yeah. some a little more an elephant might live 50 or 60 years but most of these animals are short-lived and so the reality is um, their habitats all over the world including in south africa and other places is shrinking and so as their habitats shrink and it's shrinking because of pollution in some areas because of expanding populations of people because of deforestation to plant more crops to, for more people. You know, they're growing more crops, so they're taking away habitat from these animals. Um, and by doing that, a lot of these animals become pests. You know, like my elephant, for example, was a pack hunt, a problem animal control. The elephant was going into the villages and terrorizing and tearing out the banana trees and doing all this stuff. They just, you know, it's, the villagers couldn't make a living. The elephants were just eating them out of house and home. So some of the, you know, the, there can be too many animals in any one given area. The way you look at hunting is there's two types of carrying capacities of animals. There's biological carrying capacity, and the biological carrying capacity is how much food is in this area for how many animals. So like a square mile might be able to feed one elephant, and a square mile might be able to feed 10 kudus, but there's a biological carrying capacity for that mile based on what kind of plants live there. The higher up the mountain you go, the less the things grow, the lower the carrying capacity. And then you also have cultural carrying capacity, which is 
what people will stand for, like the problem animal control. You know, there's, there may have been plenty of food for the elephant, but it was taking away from the people. So you have to take that, out, that animal out so that you can continue to have gardens and continue to grow crops for the people. So those things are all real important aspects, and they're the technical side of it. But the most important of all of that is to have fun, you know, to have fun, to learn about nature, to learn about wildlife, to learn how to shoot a bow and to have fun with it, you know. It's not about getting the animal all the time. It's about learning about nature and wildlife. Well, Tom, I mean, I can't tell you how much I really appreciate you joining me on today's show. No problem, man. Uh, it's been an absolute dream come true and to meet you, and let alone be able to hunt with you and, and just learn from you. and especially do a podcast is something very very special and will stay with me for the rest of my life so thank you so much you're welcome i appreciate it guys thank you so much for joining me on today's episode of the podcast just a big shout out to max's tires trees and camo and uh splitting image taxidermy but until next time we'll catch up with you guys soon happy hunting cheers